Hi, and welcome to the Identity North podcast. Identity North is Canada's premier identity community. At our conferences, we bring together Canadian and global leaders to share the big ideas and innovations that are shaping the global digital economy. I'm Aaron Hamilton, your host and the chair of Identity North. We have three goals at IDN. We want to educate, connect key players, and to promote Canadian innovations and organizations. We want Identity North to be the platform to discover and explore the big questions, innovations, and ideas shaping the digital economy here in Canada and around the world. Digital ID and authentication are ultimately the foundation for a digital economy. All of our interactions, our transactions, and our online lives depend on the creation of robust, secure, and scalable systems that allow us to prove who we are online. Guests will include leaders from both the public and the private sector, with a focus on Canadian leaders working at home and abroad. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Connect with us online on Twitter at Identity North or via email at info at identitynorth.ca. Hi, and welcome back to the Identity North podcast. In this episode, I wanted to go back to one of the very first persons that took me under their wing and started explaining to me how important digital identity was going to be. I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Andre Boisen. Andre, welcome. Aaron, thanks so much for having me today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Andre, it's great to have you here. I want to take us back to when we first met each other. It was getting close to 10 years ago now. And we were uh, both contributing to a national task force to evaluate how Canadians were paying each other. And I think you may have been the person that said to me, you know, Aaron, it doesn't really matter if, how we pay each other if we don't know who is on either side of the transaction. And that struck me as one of the most important things that I could learn was that we really needed to start understanding who was paying whom and how important our identities and actually our digital identities were going to be. But you had been involved in digital identity and authentication for quite some time already at that point. How long have you been involved in digital ID and authentication? Um, my whole career has actually been in the financial services space. And so I come from a payments point of view, but Aaron, I cannot believe it's been a decade we've been working on this. We've made great progress to be sure, but there's a lot yet to be done. But the, the point that uh, you're making, and I think it's just worth restating, is, is that the truth is that you know privacy and trust are the basis of trade. And so while you and I want to be able to transact, we also want to have confidence of who the counterparty is, that we're not getting tricked, and there's not going to be sort of a, a negative surprise at the end of this transaction. Yeah, and so I've been working on this space for about 25 years. And uh, one of the things I saw, that, Aaron, when you and I were working on the payments task force is that a lot of the problems we're wrestling with in the, the digitalized space, D space were very similar to problems that the payment system was dealing with at the beginning before we had credit cards. And so I saw there was a real opportunity perhaps to use the same thinking processes and technology and apply them to identity and access. And that's kind of the point of view that I brought to this. Andre, one of the things about Identity North that we're trying to do is trying to explain to people how important it is that they start to think of their careers as being associated with identity and authentication. 
but you started this a long time ago. What made you want to make identity and authentication a big part of your career? The truth is I got into identity and access uh, kind of by accident. Security was originally designed uh, its business plan around being an NFC payments company. Back in 2007, 2008, the Canadian uh, payment uh, card issuers were starting to issue tap-to-pay cards. So when you went to the store, you could tap your card instead of having to uh, do chip and pin for smaller transactions to make it faster. And so SecureKey started with the idea that, well, if you can tap at the store, you should be able to tap at home too. And so we built a USB reader that allowed consumers to tap their credit card on their uh, computer at home when they wanted to buy something online. So you're talking about contactless payments, and when Canadians started adopting contactless payments, you thought if people were buying things at maybe an online store at home, that they might be able to tap their credit cards on something that just plugged into their laptop or actually directly into their laptop, maybe. That's right. The goal was to get it embedded right in your PC. But what, in our work there with the, the Canadian banks, the banks were asking us if they could, uh, you know, if we could have a look at another challenge that they had. And the challenge they were having at the time was, and it's still a problem now, actually, is that when Andre brings a driver's license to one of their counters to enroll for a new product or a loan, they have no way to verify that this is the real driver's license for Andre Boyce and, and it hasn't been altered in some way. And so they asked us to go figure out how to open up a bank account on the internet. And so that begun the journey for me to understand how are we going to open up a bank account on the internet. And so I went out to talk to the various governments across Canada and, and talk about the problem. And one of the most interesting conversations uh, I, I got to was out in BC with the likes of Dave Nicolation and Peter Watkins and Ian Daly and talking about this problem that the banks had. And the challenge the bank has is that, you know, they can't verify the driver's license is real. And so we, we said the banks are willing to pay the province to verify the document is real. And what BC said at the time was very interesting. It said, you know what, I'm glad the banks are willing to pay us, but we have our own problem that we need to solve first. The challenge we have in BC is that we have four and a half million residents. We've got nine million healthcare cards in circulation. And by the way, we'd love to serve up healthcare records on the internet too. And that's where the, the, the that insight struck me is, and the concept was, is, you know, as much as BC runs the healthcare system, they actually do something that's more important. They run the payment system for the healthcare. Wait, 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 wait. So what you're saying is you were talking to the banks about their challenges around payments and ultimately identifying their customers and that led you to the government of BC and it sounds like that led you to another payment slash identity problem. That's right. Uh, what BC said is that uh, they were interested and, and were glad the banks were willing to pay but they had their own challenge they had to solve first. The challenge they had in BC, they had four and a half million residents and they had nine million healthcare cards in circulation but what they really wanted to do is actually make it easy for BC residents to see their healthcare records online. Are you saying that the government of British Columbia had twice as many health cards in circulation as there were people that were entitled to receive healthcare? That's right. And that actually plays out right across the country. Uh, the original healthcare cards that were issued in the country uh, were basically based on paper and they had no expiry date. And so the challenge with that model was when I lose my healthcare card and I get a new one, the old one is still 
out there on the street and whoever finds it can continue to get health care in my name. So what that means is that the system would be uh, ripe for fraud. There would potentially be uh, multiple cards uh, for each person, which could also mean that it would be a conflict with the records associated with the card. So uh, I can imagine a situation where uh, a person was, you know, one type of blood and the records might conflict because someone else with the same health card might have a different type of blood. Exactly. There's a double jeopardy problem here. When a crook goes in and masquerades as me inside the healthcare system, that crook is going to get bad healthcare because the doctor doesn't have good information. But what's worse is once that crook has been served, I'm going to get bad healthcare too because there's information about what treatments he's had associated with my record. And so BC had a patient safety issue they were trying to solve to get everybody down to one card. So how do they solve this problem? And working with BC, together we decided, you know, there was a really good opportunity here to take the same chip, an EMB chip, the same one you find in your debit or credit card, and insert it inside the BC services card. What this does is means when as you, each, uh, you know, participant in the BC services scheme, one card in service at a time. So what happens is originally I go to the counter, I do my registration to get my card, and I've got a newly minted chip that I can go and do transactions with. If I lose that card, I obviously can't get healthcare service, so I'm gonna go back to BC to tell them I lost my card and they will issue me a new one. When they do that, the card that I lost in the street is deactivated and cannot be used to present any new transactions, which really shuts down the fraud and assists in the patient safety issue we were just talking about. So what you're talking about is basically bringing a lot of the, the new technologies and the new security systems that exist for payment cards and starting to apply them to, in this case, it was a BC services card, which I understand to be the merging of a driver's license and a health card in one, if that's what the consumer wanted. Right. So what BC wanted to do is rather than issue cards for every single program the government had an offer, allow the, the, the resident to put this all in one card if they chose to, or if they wanted to have a driver's license separate from the service card, they could do that too. But they gave consumers choice and convenience by having one card for all of their government services. But Andre, wasn't this going to create kind of a honeypot? Because I mean, I have an outdoors card that is my fishing license here in Ontario. I have a driver's license. I have a health card. I might have, um, you know, uh, access to other government programs as well and have different cards under them. If you're just creating one big database, uh, with one unique identifier across all of these programs, isn't that creating more of a liability or more of a security challenge? It's a good question, but the answer is no, and let me just explain why. Um, you know, BC actually had that uh, concern as well. Uh, BC is one of the most privacy thoughtful organizations I've ever worked with, and they also didn't want to become a surveillance network following their citizens around. And so security had been pioneering already this concept of triple blind privacy, which says that, uh, you know, the source and destination won't know about each other and the network operator won't be able to see either. And so we applied that thinking to the, the, the services card. So the outside of your card is indistinguishable from any card you would see today. There is a lot of information on the surface of the card, but the chip that goes inside the card is anonymous at the time of issue. It's not linked to anybody or anything. At some time later, as a BC resident, if I want to activate my chip because I want to do an online service, there's a mechanism to activate and make a binding between my card 
in whatever service I choose to go to, whether it's healthcare or driver's license or whatever. What's important is that um, there's a method underneath where we do pairwise identifiers. A modern term for that is a DID or directed identifier, which means that I get a unique identifier for each program I use my card with. So there is no single identifier that's being used across the government or anywhere else that I go for that matter. So wait a second. What this means is that this one card kind of acts as individual different cards for each of the different programs and each of the different departments within the BC government? Exactly right. It's kind of like a chameleon. It changes its number depending on the service you go to. But it's all anchored in the same route, so you, the user, only have to have one thing, but it looks different everywhere you go. Okay, that's really interesting. So you started working with, uh, with, on this program with the government of BC and a number of other suppliers a few years ago. As I understand, that's been rolled out a few years ago now, and, and there's, uh, most of BC has these new BC services cards. So what kind of programs are they starting to roll out with this? Uh, they've got a very ambitious set of programs they're going to attach to the card, and BC is starting to roll those out now. And so um, notionally, it's the idea that getting access to your healthcare records or senior kids' education information or being registered to vote, those are all ideas and programs that they're readying. And you know, we'll have a, maybe in a future episode having them on to talk about which programs first and why. But what is interesting is you know, now that they've done all of this hard work, What's cool now is BC is the first jurisdiction probably in the world that can actually deliver verified claims to an open network. And okay, Andre, so I understand how your initial projects that you were trying to do with the banks led you to start working with the government of BC and how that took you down a path of solving a number of projects with the government of BC. But were you able to bring that back to the original task, which was to work with the banks? Yeah, what's interesting, Aaron, both you and I uh, have been working on DIAC now for a decade, and that was, uh, you know, came out of the work that we did together at the Payments Task Force. And so an interesting proof of concept that we were able to do in the last 12 to 18 months was demonstrate now that the BC Services Card, which is unique as a government services card in the world, could be used now to create an online bank account in a way that was a better experience for the Canadian who wanted the account and at the same time allowed the bank to meet its business obligations and its regulatory duties at the same time. I find this really interesting, Andre. So the idea is that I can open a bank account online and I wouldn't have to already have a pre-existing relationship with the bank. Because I know right now, if I'm dealing with my particular home bank, for example, I can online go and create secondary and tertiary um, accounts with that bank. But what you're talking about is creating a whole new relationship with a bank that I've never worked with before. That's exactly right. And so there are methods today for bank accounts to do, uh, you know, easy online opens. But the challenge is the way it works is if you have a relationship with Bank One, Bank Two can rely on that KYC work that's been done by Bank One by clearing a check for a dollar or more. The challenge for Bank Two in that scenario, however, all it says is the check cleared. They have no idea who did it. So they still have to interrogate you, the user. This method here allows you to prove in a trustworthy way it's really you. And this gives the bank a better uh, capacity to serve you without so much interrogation at the same time build a trustworthy account and allow them to meet their regulatory obligations. What I think is really interesting here is when you think about the vast size of Canada and you realize how many people are not able to get to a bank uh, on any given day because quite frankly they may not geographically be located near one or if they are 
they may not have a great choice and a wide variety, a wide selection that they can choose from. But what you're talking about doing is opening up at, uh, this, the market so that, I guess, anywhere in the country at least, I could open up a bank account with any Canadian bank. That's exactly right. And what's, we've been talking about bank accounts because it's one of the harder problems to solve on the internet, but it's really about trying to solve the problems we have right across the economy. There's a lot of things we can't do online. We can't get a bank account. We can't see our healthcare records. We can't register to vote. We can't see our ed kids' education information, and we can't get insurance or a new cell phone, all because there's no trustworthy way to know it's you. And this solves the trusted identity problem. Okay, I, I like to unpack those, because those are three or four really great examples of things that I'd really like to be able to do online, but I just can't do it. So now that we've got this um, situation in the, with the government of BC having created an online identifier, and this is now being able to be trusted by the banks, conceivably, we can solve all those problems? Exactly right. So, you know, we, we have a method for doing this in person already, which is the way we do it in person is we demonstrate control of physical documents when we go to a counter. What this allows us to do is do this in a digital way, but instead of presenting paper or physical documents, instead of that, you demonstrate control of trusted accounts issued in the same name. So you can kind of see a world where, well, okay, now I can bring in my digital driver's license. That's a portion of my identity. And maybe if I can correlate that against my bank information so that I can put those two things together to make it easier for me to log in when I want to get there, that gets to be kind of cool. And if I can bring in my cell phone, that gets to be kind of cool because I only have one phone at a time and that's controlled by a physical card too. We can get to a very, very strong identity scheme, very similar to the payment scheme. In the payment scheme, we have chip and pen. And what we're trying to do is create that equivalent of chip and pen, but for digital identity. So what you're saying, Andre, is that the government of the future is not going to have to provide services by opening up a whole bunch of different offices across the country. In fact, the government of the future might not have to have offices at all. Um, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. The mantra across Canada for governments is digital services first. And what they mean by that is they want to have a mechanism to serve online. But that's not to get rid of the in-person experience. It's for those who choose to be served online, they can do that while can still having the choice of going to the counter. For example, if I'm homebound because I have a, a mobility limitation, as an example, this allows me to conduct the transaction from my home rather than requiring me to go down to the counter. All it does is offer more choice. And I would presume, Andre, that if you can make this work for me on a personal basis, this, you can also make this work for me on a business basis so that when I'm at my desk, I don't have to get up from my desk in order to go to the bank. Exactly right. Once we have strong consumer identity information available, it allows us to solve an adjacent problem for people in business. When you're a small business operator, you often don't have time to go to the bank and so you want to transact and create new accounts uh, you know, at your convenience. And so in your case, Aaron, in running Identity North, you know, Identity North is registered as the legal business. And so we need to be able to verify that fact. And then inside that business registration, there says the director and the CEO of that organization is Aaron Hamilton. What we need to be able to do is use the consumer ID to verify if that is the same Aaron Hamilton that has rights over this account for uh, uh, Identity North. And once you can do that, then you can start to do business ID in a much more 
holistic and integrated way and make it more like consumer ID. So Andre, you started working on this 25 years ago. And over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of progress. Are we there yet? This is one of the most exciting times ever to be involved with the digital identity space. There's a lot of experimentation going around the world that, uh, and there's different interesting things that are happening, but there's a lot of attention being paid to what's happening here in Canada because of what BC has done and what the government of Canada has done in collaboration with the banks to make single sign on for you know, government services easier. This next phase where we get to trust digital identity is really going to allow us to transform the Canadian con economy in a very meaningful way. And I, and I think in a way that the rest of the world is going to take notice. So what are the alternatives, Andre? Like, what a, well, that was dumb. I don't like thinking in there. So what are the alternatives, Andre? We are talking about, this sounds like a made in Canada solution. And it's, you know, let's be honest, Canada is only 35 million people or so. So are we talking about having to build a different solution for every country in the world? Yeah, so when you think about how digital identity could unfold in the future, I think there's four kind of possibilities. Choice number one is kind of where we are. Is, you know, we, we keep the hard stuff off the internet and we force people to go to a counter for the hard stuff, and that's choice number one. Choice number two maybe is, you know, we continue on with user IDs and passwords, and we just continue to invest year after year and play cat and mouse with the, with the crooks and fraud. So that's kind of choice number two. Choice number three, and this is actually the default choice, is that the internet giants do it and we just you know, take whatever they have on offer. And choice number four is we decide as a country that we want a scheme that works for Canadians by Canadians and make it work as a community of government and banks and telcos and all the other players in the economy collaborating on a single scheme. And so Diac and you and I, Aaron, have been working on this fourth option for a decade now, and we're now on the cusp of making it real. And so one of the challenges, however, is that if we get it right in Canada, we, we hit the ball out of the park and build an awesome scheme. But yes, the, you know, the rest of the world goes a different direction. The challenge for us is that we're going to have to change. So what Diac is doing and you know, we as a community are doing is trying to get other jurisdictions to adopt the approach, the standards, the methods and the user experience that's being used into here in Canada and other places so that it becomes the global standard. You just referred to one of the options being to, it would be that we would rely on the internet giants to take the lead for us and decide how we would identify ourselves online. For those of us that use you know, uh, Apple or, or Microsoft or Huawei products, I guess we could be talking about um, our phones and our computers that um, actually we, we deal with it most of the time. Is that what you're, where you're going? Or are you talking about Facebook and Google as well? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is that, you know, it's going to be a long time before we're using Facebook to change title in a house. I don't think we're ever going to reach that day. I, I do think, though, Apple, of all of the Internet giants, is the best privacy company. They really do believe strongly in identity, and they've really done a great job of making a simple user experience, but also a strong digital ID. And so I think Apple could be a credible player. The challenge is the other um, internet giants really have a data model that's based on monetization of consumer data. So it's surveillance capitalism. And so the problem, particularly in public sector, is they're not really going to want to be uh, doing transactions with a credential that's going to monetize data out the back because that's not a good public sector policy position to have. So if Apple does great, 
but the others go down the surveillance route, that doesn't really solve the problem for public sector. So I'm a big fan of Apple. I continue to use all their products. And when Apple ID eventually you know, allows you to get outside of the Apple universe and go elsewhere, I'll probably use it for some use cases, but it's not going to solve the tough challenges that we've just been talking about. Thanks, Andre. I think you've outlined a few different options and a few different paths that are or we face as a as a society. Maybe take us through where you think we should be headed and, and what do you think that we should be doing to uh, to kind of point ourselves in the right direction? Yeah, so part one is, is already starting to happen, but we need to give more energy to it, which is accelerate the work being done by governments to have the the physical documents the uh, the issue to participate in a modern digital economy. For example, when we talk about health cards, so the ones that are you know paper or plastic today need to be updated so they can participate in a digital healthcare scheme. So that work is progressing, and but my hope is that we can make it go faster. The next big challenge is all the organizations in the world today that continue to do their own work in isolation and issue user IDs and passwords. They've got to wake up and recognize that there's a better alternative on offer. So rather than pushing user IDs and passwords out to users, recognize that users are going to have trusted things that they can bring to get into your service. So begin the acceptance game of taking trusted credentials in from outside. And then the third thing we do is we need just to generate awareness for Canadians about how important the service is, how it will make their life better and safer. And with those three things going together, I think we'll see faster adoption in Canada and we can really become a showplace for the world in digital identity. Well, on that note, actually, uh, at the time of recording this, the government of Alberta is, uh, is called for an election and the opposition party has actually said that putting together digital ID cards um, is part of their, as part of their platform. And do you think that we are gonna expect to see uh, you know, more and more governments and maybe even the Canadian federal government putting this forward as a major policy platform? I think uh, at the outset, all of us are Canadians first, and we have a national interest in having a good and trustworthy digital economy. Digital identity is something that's supported by parties' ball flags because they recognize there's a benefit for Canadians for doing it. And so what we need each successive government to do is pick up the flag and the mantle and move this file more forward more quickly so we can get to the end point that we've all been talking about it. And so the elections this year will help, you know, have a, a better dialogue about what this is all about and also accelerate the adoption to make it happen. Thanks very much, Andre. I've really enjoyed talking with you today and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and, uh, and tracking your next projects. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Identity North podcast.